Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, The Magicians episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we bring magic back into our lives for episode four, Mary Fuck Kill. Written by Henry Alonso Myers and directed by John Scott. If you don't remember that name, he's done Impractical Applications, Divine Elimination, and A Life in the Day. Our favorite episode. The critic said this was a standalone episode that rested on the quiet and intimate moments. It focused on character relationships through strange pairings instead of an overarching adventure or main conflict. I think that sums it up perfectly. I agree, and it's going to be my positives and negatives both for the episode that a lot of the action wasn't necessarily in direct conjunction with our big plot lines and stories for the season. This is not to say anything was irrelevant because it never is in The Magicians. And a lot of what they were building was furthering character development and relationships amongst each other. For instance, the entire Margot Josh storyline. I'm sure this is going to continue to impact upon Margot in the future and what happens with the dynamic duo of Margot and Elliot. Mm -hmm. Should he, hopefully, when he comes back... And I know we got some comments from our Clatchers when I mentioned on the last podcast, how is Josh's lycanthropy and if it's Josh 23 or 40 going to impact on the main story? They were like, what do you mean it's not going to impact? He's a werewolf. Of course, this is going to come back around. I should have clarified myself further. Not that that's not important. It is. And we see how this could keep spreading out to affect other people. But my question was, how does it tie into some of the big Points that we know we're seeing this season, the new world order of the library, the Elliot monster and what he's hunting for, our group finally having their identities back and trying to save magic. For real, for real. As per usual, there was also a slight feeling of disconnectedness with Alice's storyline, but I'm not minding that. It's more like a subplot that I think is going to play crucial importance that's playing out in another area right now, building up to how they will tie it into the others at some point and talk about character development. We had gotten the reassurances from a strong moral figure, Santa, previously about Alice and how she is in fact a good person. This time we get that through comparison to a morally bankrupt character such as Christopher Plover. Yeah, somehow has less of an impact when it comes from him. I think you have to forgive yourself. Yeah. Are you talking to yourself because you're trying to forgive yourself, buddy? <laughs> I think it's more by comparison to him. <laughs> yeah. But it also goes to show that the Magicians does not ever drop anything. What happened to Plover? Here he is. We're going to get more into that later on. In fact, our character review for this episode will be Christopher Plover. This also continued to build one of our favorite aspects of the season so far, Margot's incredible strength. The fact that she is the High King, now and forever, in any area she traverses into. But as Den of Geek said, her vulnerability with regard to Elliot was a wonderful counterpoint to her regal bearing and her making all of the tough decisions. They continue to humanize her in that way. And especially this episode, the fact that she is not going to lose anyone else from this group. She's going to do whatever it takes to save Josh. 
Yeah, hopefully that'll help Josh with his insecurities about actually feeling as if he's one of the group. I don't know where that leaves him. It was a bit of a strange ending note between the two of them. We can talk about that during that scene. But also speaking of tying things in, they brought in our favorites, the Greek mythology and characters that perhaps seem secondary, the Menads, to start explaining Julia's power and what's happening with her. I really liked the way that they wove that in. I was especially happy to see they were doing it through Shoshana and the group since we had discussed Bacchus as our character review last time. And we did talk about the followers, the Menads, what that was like in mythology, what they represented. Just a great modernization, a translation of them onto screen, I thought. Absolutely. They do that so well. I love the fact that their staff was there. And it's exactly how you described it. Yeah, the Thursis. I was thinking, that can't be Bacchus's Thursis, right? This is just another one that some of the followers have to utilize. Moving into our fun facts section, we got an excellent email from one of our Clatchers, Todd, who asked, have you noticed in the opening sequence, the building that we see behind the title card, the graffiti that usually adorns the wall is gone this season? What do we think that means, if anything? Is it meant to reflect the hidden identities our characters took on because that plot point was rather short-lived and the graffiti is still missing? So in case you haven't been taking notice of this, normally we have a cold open where the episode starts a little bit and then the title sequence that introduces the show before the words The Magicians come up. We see a building in the background that usually has graffiti on it. Yes, it kind of builds during the uh, opening sequence. That building is actually at the base of the Brooklyn Bridge. It's a really cool building. And a lot of scenes from a lot of movies and TV shows are filmed there. Before we get into what it looks like now, it has had several images that change over the seasons. Season one, right in the center, you could see a hand reaching out. Yeah, I always thought, and maybe it's because the way the magician started out, I always felt, for no reason other than that, that that was Quentin's hand. I would tend to agree. Reddit had a great theory that said this hand is playing with time because it looks like it's right over the stopwatch that creates the time loops that Jane Chatwin had. We also see on the bottom right, the Breakbill's crest, a bunch of wasps with a key on one of the stingers. So that was mm-hmm. foreshadowing because that was season one. Yeah. There's a dragon on the right. You can't really see. It's just the side of it, but that's definitely a dragon, right? Yes, I think so. We got some notations about that as well, the shadow dragon. There is a plane kind of towards the top left that people thought was the plane Q repairs in season one. And if so, amazing foreshadowing. I can't even believe that, that I'm pretty sure we had mentioned he built model airplanes. We get to see this very episode. This is something that comes from his father who has tons and tons of them and winds up being pivotal to the emotional arc. Also on the only door in this image is the tattoos that our hedge witches tattoo on themselves that we spoke about earlier. And I believe this is the hedge witch door. And it's the one that has the keyhole on the inside. That's right. Which we thought was unique this season that we had normally not seen that. Again, here it is all the way back then. So this is their main hideout. I remember this wall actually in the season um, when Julia is going to the main part. If you get a chance, just Google it and check it out. It's kind of fun. It's like a puzzle. Yeah, real quick, the skull that looks like a cattle skull that we believe is the figurehead to the Muntjac. Last season, season three, this changed most importantly to include the seven keys. We have another circular figure where the wasps used to be, and each one of the points extends up to a symbol that represent the keys. We talked about 
how each one shows the key's purpose, a little bit about it. Then there's the bunny. The messenger bunny. There's Margot's eye in its cage. And two pennies next to each other. So incredible. And so many other details. However, this season, the wall is completely blank. Everything looks cleaned up right down to the door on the left-hand side. is painted white. It has nice flowers next to it. So on Twitter, somebody asked, Sierra Gamble, I thought the blank intro this season was brilliant. I assumed the graffiti would return with the group's identities, but it hasn't. Blank all season or still to come? She responded, look closer at what's on the wall. It's part of the story this season. Easter egg. (laughs) Of course, this is one of the first things I noticed because the wall is so empty. There's a small green sign towards the bottom right. I said, that hasn't always been there, has it? The sign says, clean up provided by, with a circle and a symbol, O-L-N, and a book on top. Order of the Netherlands Library. So, the graffiti's gone. Chaos has been extinguished and painted over. The O-L-N is in control. So, thank you, Todd. That was a good question. One we didn't even really pay attention to. And we are normally so big on that. Opening sequences, what they mean, I didn't even pick up on it. Let's go to our segment, New Faces and Places. This episode, we met Enid, played by Kasia Kripinski, the unfortunate victim of Isaac's transformation. We'll get more into that in our plot review, but Josh realizes at some point, well, he did sleep with somebody as Isaac. And speaking of, how did he get this in the first place? We learned the backstory. It was from the cryptozoology professor that he had a one-night stand with. She's played by Arden Myron. And the reappearance of Christopher Plover, played by Charles Shaughnessy. He also looked a little bit disheveled. (laughs) He's been sleeping in a hideout, somehow undetected by the library. Is that the case? He said, they don't know I'm living here. Oh, wow. I don't know how he's getting away with that. Maybe the spells that are on his face prevent them from seeing him. Yeah, we've seen a lot of protective type enchantments when we were getting a look at Marina and her apartment. That could definitely be. His main goal in life brings us to our first magical item, the World Book, an atlas used to locate different worlds through a cooperative spell. So basically, via a book, you can travel just like the Fountain Island? It seems to be. I have a lot of questions about that. But primarily, is it going to be important where he goes to? Is that the reason we've been seeing the Cheerios... The opening world shots yeah. before we you go see, to the library all ones. season. I wonder. I don't think they brought Plover back as just a one-off to no. tie up a loose end. I don't think. I suspect it's not going to be like Santa, that this is going to play in somehow to the bigger storyline. Well, and finally, we got to hear more about lycanthropy, a curse with transformations tied to the lunar cycle. Behavioral changes that are mostly non-lethal, except for during the quickening, which happens about once every 30 years. Without further ado, let's dive into our plot, where we open up in the library, and Alice realizes it's Christopher Plover that grabbed her. She sums it up nicely, in case we've forgotten, the child molester responsible for Martin Chatwin becoming the Beast. Unbeknownst to the librarians, he has been living here in some sort of hideout room, and explains he got her out of sight before they were caught because they can help each other. He knows she's trying to escape the order, and the reason she didn't leave with Santa is she's looking for the group's books. In return, he needs her help running this spell on the world book. After years of being tortured by the beast and regretting his actions, I I just want to go somewhere where I can do no harm. 
I'll never do that again, I swear on my life. Yeah, well, I don't know if I believe you. I spent years being tortured by Martin. Plenty of time to think on my actions and regret them. Did you never unintentionally hurt someone you love, Alice? I never molested a child. But yes, I've done things I regret. Don't you deserve happiness? No. If she wants to survive, she needs to understand the things she's done aren't the same as who she is. Again, it's really like he's talking to himself. This is the justification, right? The rationale he's been using his whole life to try to move past what he's done. And now there's nothing else for it but to move to an entirely different world. Maybe that will solve my problems. Thus, he takes her to the revision room where workers collect manuscripts from the magical typewriters finishing all the books. He says if the library discovers she's stolen one, they'll come after her. But there's another answer. When he was writing The Wandering Dune, he was also studying magic. He found a spell for automated writing. If they steal the books, pull the endings, and cast a spell to change it, the stories will turn out differently. He'll show her the spell if she helps with the book. Now this was one of the many awesome one-liners in this episode. And this is when she's like, that explains Netflix. (laughs) Also, Christopher Plover is less impressive because all those books that we love him for or that that world loves him for, he didn't write. He just put a premise down. (sighs) They make it sound like that, but it was very different in the book. So I don't know if that's just the ending portion. They weren't really his story in the books either. They were the Chatwin story that he was essentially recording and turning into a tale. Again, we'll get deeper into that in the character review. Well, would this explain the reason why these books actually are true? Where Quentin is hoping that there really is a break bills and all this stuff in season one, and then there really is? Is that because Magic actually wrote that book? Well, we have all these questions about it, right? Are they just seeing a fate that's set in stone and making the recordings of what's going to happen? Does writing something in the book actually change the course of events? Because that's what they're about to do. It seems like they are just responsible for record keeping, but we don't really know. That's going to play a huge role because the end of this sequence, Alice finds the end of Quentin's book. And he's supposed to die next week. Okay. Yikes. Yes. I think this is a bait and switch. Just like when the monster tells Q that Elliot's dead. And then we see that he's not dead. He's trapped somewhere in his mind. Could it actually just be the fact that, and I'm guessing here, the end of Q's book at this stage, maybe this is volume one, but the end of Q's book is when the monster leaves Elliot, assuming that the next episode or the one after, we see Elliot fighting to get back. Um, maybe he accomplishes it. The monster jumps out of Elliot and goes into Q. If that happens, I'm going to be horribly disappointed because we'd mentioned how we've had a lot of that. Jumping. Yes. We've seen it with the lamprey moving from person to person, how people change when things are removed, put back into them. I, I just feel like it's been done a bit much. I see what you're saying, though. It would be typical for this to be a bait and switch with this impending disaster when we had just seen the preview for the episode. They said his book ends next week. But here, Alice actually says he's going to die next week, making it sound like she's read something in that ending that leads to his end. And that makes you very concerned. I don't think they're going to take Quentin away from us, the main character, but he is about to 
go up against the Elliot monster. Yeah, and the monster said Elliot is dead. So it's the same terminology. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think because of lack of other evidence, that's the only way I can go in my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have to wait on that. They keep us hanging with the library plot line. And we move over to what takes up the bulk of the episode. Our storyline with Margot and Josh. It starts with Josh baking condolence muffins for Q and trying to deal with the guilt about Bacchus. When Margot comes in asking about Darth Elliot, Penny secretly tells Josh she's going to get them all killed. I think this was a subtle line that you could miss, sort of shoved in there. It A shows as a reminder that this is not our Penny. I don't think Penny Forty would say that about Margot. B, she is the one making all the really tough decisions and perhaps Penny is not going to like where that's going at some point. Is it foreshadowing for sort of a break or issues that could happen between them in the future? Darth Elliot. I love Margot. (laughs) In the other room, the Elliot monster says he's examined it over and over again and it still won't reveal itself to him. He's talking about the part he removed from Bacchus, whatever in the hell that is. And it's now hardened into something else. Mm. One of our Clatchers was talking to me and said that he believes that that was the light. That's the spark. And I like where his head's at because it was also visually given to us that way via Margot's eye. She said it's so bright, it's like staring into the sun. I like that theory, but I don't want to believe that it's a physical thing. I don't want it to be like something that looks like a heart or something, that spark. I need it to be more of an element in my head. Well, and I think we've been shown this episode, what we've suspected all along, that Julia hasn't lost that. It changed form and she didn't know how to recognize that because she couldn't manipulate her own magic right now. It does seem that she's been building back up that power and Shoshana reveals it's there. Holy shit, girl, you still have a lot of power. These two things are not the same. So I'm not exactly sure what is going on here, except that it does seem the item removed from Bacchus, for lack of a better term, has changed since it left his body. Whether that's because it's hardening itself against the Elliot monster, against revealing its secrets, or because it needs to be housed inside of somebody to flourish. And maybe that's why maybe all of the gods have a part of it living within them. I wonder. It looked like he was twisting it, kind of like um, the Da Vinci Code. It's like a codex or something. Mm. But again, I saw it briefly, and I think I'm just letting my imagination (laughs) go with me. But then he's saying it's not revealing anything to me, so that's where my brain went. I wonder. And I don't know how important that's going to be. It's got to be, right? Oh, it's going to be critical. Yeah. Yeah. And again, he says, why can't I remember? That's a big piece of the puzzle, whatever happened when they took it, that his memories have been wiped or went with it. And the fact that the Elliot monster is having this quandary, I think, adds so many more layers to him as a monster, as opposed to what we learned about him at the end of season three, where he just needs to play. He just needs to be constantly occupied. This is so much more interesting. Now we can actually see him as a being, I almost said as a person, but as a being who has thought, who has ideas, and some level of understanding. More and more, it seems, what he's devoid of is due to what was taken from him. There's parts that remain, but he can't connect with the essential human experience. This is revealed in a great way through his interactions with Quentin this time. When he says he doesn't understand the whole missing your dead dad thing, he says, I've never had that experience, or at least I can't remember it. Maybe this will help. These are things that would cause him to be more human, more relatable. 
So I think they're doing with that area, much like Alice, it's a slow build and unfold over the course of the season. I think it's done brilliantly because it's not completely pulling him out of the character that we've learned he is. He still is that monster. He's still doing it for selfish reasons at this point. But we are being opened up to something new. Margot tries again to get to him here by saying the deal is done. Why doesn't he just take a new body now? But he's not interested in that. He disappears. Nice try, Margot. That was her last ditch effort, I Mm -hmm. think. To make her feel better, Josh brings her a ball of carbs. (laughs) Always works. Yeah, when we read the synopsis, we were going off of our momentum of, is this the bad Josh? So we were like, oh, is he poisoning her? Briefly. I think they were even playing with that. Yeah. Because they highlighted her taking the muffin. Then he starts to have effects and... We say, oh my God, no, it's vice versa. He's the one something's happening to. Of course, we realize he's transforming. He's becoming a werewolf. It seems like bad things are going to happen until he comes to, thinks the whole thing was a horrible dream, wakes up in the bed, but pulls back the covers to find bloody animal parts. He frantically tries to clean up, but is discovered by Penny. Yummy. The exact wrong person. Penny knows it's the quickening. He again warns Josh to stay away from Julia and get the shit figured out fast. She finds the two of them, and when she admits Marina's books aren't helping her with her issues, Josh suggests talking to the Menads, Bacchus's followers, who were sort of like high priests slash nurses. They're probably still in Fillory. You don't really hear it because they're interrupted, but he does say, don't let Julia see this, Penny, or mm-hmm. something like that. And it's a little wink-wink reminder Remember, this Penny was so in love with Julia. Yeah, he keeps telling him, stay away from her. I feel bad for Katie. If you make this her problem. That whole time, this whole episode, I was feeling really badly for Katie. And unfortunately, we didn't get to see her this time. But as Penny and Julia leave, Josh goes to confront the professor. We learn that they slept together after her bad divorce, and she never disclosed her L-positive status. Rude. She breaks down lycanthropy for Josh and the quickening. know everything. You're a goddamn cryptozoology professor. What do you know? Lycanthropy is technically a curse. Uh, Transformations are tied to the lunar cycle and behavioral changes are mostly non-lethal, except during the quickening. Well, that sounds pretty, pretty bad. Well, luckily it only happens every 30 years or so. In the 48 hours leading up, all lycanthropes experience urges, starting in the form of nightmares or even waking dreams. What is the curse trying to make me do? Have traditional sex with an uninfected person or kill them. In layman's terms, they're becoming the quintessential worst part of the werewolf. Once every 30 years when the moon lines up right and everything is just in order, they're not just going to have a little transformation. They're going to have the quickening and this will happen. Also, locking yourself up won't satisfy the urge. If he tries to suppress it, he will either kill someone or tear himself apart. That's what she did when it happened to her, and it worked. So now we know what Josh needs to do. He's got to unknowingly pass this along to somebody else. Not unknowingly. He has to pass it along to someone else who's a human. Right. That human can't know. No, that's not true. Margot knew. What other person in the world besides Margot is going to say yes? To that situation. It seems like that's generally the way it works. 
the disease wants you to sleep with an unaffected person so that it keeps passing along. And typically, you're probably not going to tell them I'm a werewolf. There we go. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I was reading too far into what you were saying. It's not like it won't work if they know. Right. It just probably in reality won't work. Yeah, you're not going to be like, hey, by the way. (laughs) I'm a werewolf. It's cool, though. Back at the apartment, Josh tells Margot this is like being caught in a real-life game of marry, fuck, kill, but marry isn't an option. Of course, though, she has a plan to fix it. Scouring their books, Josh says it seems like no one's ever beat the curse. Yet Margot finds a ritual from an Indonesian tribe to prevent transformations. They'll need to translate it. In the meantime, Josh has the realization that while he's been upfront with potential partners about his status, Isaac wasn't. And he goes to warn the one woman he slept with during that time. This whole situation was so ridiculous, it was funny. He goes to this woman Enid's house, but he can't tell her he's actually Isaac. So he makes up this story that he's there for a friend of his and, you know, did maybe something happen. He's a little embarrassed he came down with something. Anyway, he wants to run through her symptoms to see if she has it. She's acting hostile and skittish, says she's not feeling herself. She doesn't want to talk to him, but finally admits she's scared. It's been a hard few days, and how could she even do that to someone else? At this point, Josh finds the bedroom where she's keeping the dead chopped up bodies. Yeah, a lot worse than a small animal. Oh, and she starts laughing as though this (laughs) is a relief. It's not that bad, is it? I think it was a relief because she finally could talk about it. I'd like to think, let's make our own story here, that he lets her know what she needs to do, and then it's up to her. Mm-hmm. I hope he didn't just bounce. Oof. Yeah, I know. That's pretty dark. And he is feeling horribly guilty, as though he didn't have enough to deal with, with Bacchus weighing on him. Now this. And he returns to find out Margot's translated the ritual, and she's sure they can pull it off. But they need one exotic magical ingredient, a living Komodo dragon, so they can cut out its heart. And she heard Kanye has one at his apartment. <laughs> so right away I was thinking... Margot is amazing. She's putting in all this effort and energy while everyone else is out doing their own shit that they have to take care of. Where Katie is, we don't know. Hopefully we'll find out soon. She's with some puppies. Marina. Oh, you think Marina's a puppy? No. <laughs> oh. Also. Where is Marina? That's She's in trouble. That's funny. Yeah, where is Marina and who took her? What's going on with the McAllisters? We don't know any of that. So here we have Margot. I love her character right now. I love how strong she is. Even if behind that is a weakness, and that's the loss of Elliot. But I kept thinking, looking at the environment where they're talking to each other, this is a beautiful place. I love Marina's apartment. I wish I could live there. Mm. But I really miss the physical kids' cottage. Yeah, each season they sort of have a new gathering place. Home base. If you will, but they always come back to break bills. I mean, we've even seen that this season going back to Dean Fogg's office. They never totally drop it. I want my jean couch. <laughs> well, before Margot and Josh leaves, he gives her a gun loaded with a silver bullet just in case she needs to stop him. But she's not willing to lose anybody else. She says it won't come to that. When we cut to the two shouting out a ritual in the woods at night and Josh eating the Komodo heart. But unfortunately, it doesn't work. On the drive home, he starts having delusions about Margot. He leaps out of the car, starts transforming and runs into the woods. I really want Margot's chant to be my ringtone. I love that chant. It's so cool. It was funny. It was funny. Now, I'm going to get chastised for this, and I may be wrong. 
but this episode almost cemented my thoughts in the fact that that is not Josh 23 because this is our Josh. He's so selfless. Mm -hmm. He's worried about everyone else more than himself. And that continues to happen throughout this episode. Even just the established relationship. And I know that some of that would be there. We've seen the crossover between characters, but the way he interacts with the entire group with Margot, I've suspected that for a while but I agree with you this only further makes me believe that and I think we're losing something if it's not our Josh that went through all of this now he returns to the car a short while later saying he did something with a tree to keep the urges at bay until they get back to break bills and we have my favorite line of this episode you mind telling me where that is maple dick (laughs) she's amazing with her (laughs) one-liners Having the two of them together, this is something the magicians excels at, turning what could be very, very dark material, and still is, but slightly comedic, adding the funny points to it. And we get to find out what his plan is to do exactly what he was warned not to. Back at Breakbills, he locks himself inside of that cage, horrified at what he could have done to Margot. He only has a few hours left and he doesn't want to lose control, but Margot will not let him die in there. She takes matters into her own hands, locking herself in with him. She can't make him kill someone, but she can consent. We both kind of saw this happening as that scene was unfolding, but I'm not sure if I liked it. I don't understand why Margot would do that. One, she's much more valuable. This sounds so bad. As a person? She's still a person. We see with Josh during the normal course of things. But she's much more valuable as a person in this world. I mean, she's a king. She's got a fairy eye. For her to be the one that goes into the cage and sacrifice herself, quote unquote. I like the action. I like her stepping up to do that, actually, because it continues to highlight what we've been saying for a few episodes. There's nothing Margot won't do to protect the people she loves to maintain that position, she is going to be the one to make hard decisions. And if that means they're running out of time, there's nobody else there right now, and she can fix this. She can make sure Josh doesn't kill himself Mm. or somebody else. And in her own mind, we find out the thought process later, well, she'll sort of transform once a month, not so bad, and she won't have to worry about the quickening for another 30 years herself. She thinks this is well worth the payoff. And I don't want to go down a long sidebar on worldviews, but it's being brought up in some of the reviews of the episode and definitely a point that they're making. There's a theme of consent running through this and feminism and the idea that you can make that decision, but still be very in control of your body as a woman. This is a terrible thing, but I'm choosing to do this. I'm empowering myself that this is what needs to be done in the moment and I'm capable. Cool. Make me feel shallow. (laughs) (laughs) No, but where I will agree with you, it got weird after. It did. I don't know what's happening in that scene after. Do they actually like each other romantically? Are you ready to ship them? Because I'm not. No. I no. <laughs> never saw it. But one of our Clatchers did write in and remind us of kind of a flippant scene, one of the funny moments in last season. Anon wrote to us and said, remember when Margot asked if it would be weird if she fucked Josh? And Elliot said he certainly hoped it would be weird. Nothing weirder than werewolf sex. <laughs> I, I don't even remember that, that conversation. Well, her having sex with him, let's get serious. Both her and Elliot have had their fair share of flings 
throughout the course of these seasons, including a three-way with Quentin once that doesn't necessarily always turn into something. This didn't feel like just a sexual relationship. The way they were together and talking afterwards is like they actually made each other happy. Yeah. And could see this being more than casual. And the way she was cuddling with him, we've never seen her cuddle. Smiling, glowing, saying, I just saved your life. Of course this isn't casual. She went on to say it's not just about uh, putting the P in the V. Mm-hmm. There's more to it. What I can't get past, and I think there's going to be more consequences than we assume at this point. My first consequence question was answered right away. Well, if the quickening's not over, is she now going to have this issue right away? And it looks like that's not the case. No. But my second thing is, she's different from Josh. She's going to be king. I mean, she is king. But when she's back in Fillory, hopefully everything's cool in the end. But she has a fairy eye, which we know nothing about still. As a wolf with a fairy eye, is that wolf pretty much going to be like almost indestructible, can see things that other wolves can't see and, you know, can do things more dangerous than a regular werewolf? Yeah, it might power her up in a good way. Jennifer wrote in to say, how perfect is it? The woman who won kingship of Fillory due to the talking animals is now a werewolf. Maybe this will help her in the case of Fillory. On normal earth, it's just a horrible curse, but there might it be a good thing. That's a good observation. I I hadn't even thought about it that way. Wow. And as a king, if she says once a month, she's indisposed for the day. Is anybody really going to care or fight that with her? True. I mean, maybe nobody ever even knows. For 30 years. Once a day, once a month. I mean... Well, they have a dungeon. She could get away with it. They have a dungeon, so the next quickening, she can go down there and have her way with someone who's bad. A prisoner being sentenced to death or something. (laughs) Maybe turn uh, Tick Pickwick into a Oh, yes, Tick. Oh, my God. Okay, let's get off that. Too much, yeah. Uh, the The end of the sequence, though... It's really sad. The last thing she says, when Josh tells her he's sorry they couldn't find a way to help Elliot, she thinks he might actually be gone. Is she emotionally giving up on him here? She just doesn't know what else to do and thinks they may have lost him. So we're midway through our plot and we wanted to take this time to say a big thank you to our new Patreon Clatchers. Salvi, Rich, Sherry, Ashley, Haley, Peaselpuff, Larissa, Jennifer. Thank you so much for becoming part of the family over at Patreon. You're helping us out tremendously, and we hope you like all the extra content. There's well over three days worth of content there. We have laughs, we have cries, we have emotional moments. Because this month... Oh, they signed up just in time for a -a once-in-a-lifetime Patreon exclusive. Just last week... We released our coffee break episode, which is the $3 tier, less than a cup of coffee. And we had a podcast about Valentine's Day. And I snuck in or rolled in because there was a little bit of... Cleverly rolled in. I asked Christina to marry me. Yay! (laughs) If you haven't heard it, this is definitely the time to go check out Patreon so you get access to that. I wonder if this has ever been done on a podcast before. Did we just make podcast history? Let's just say it's never been done. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. Um, I was sweating a lot. We were doing two podcasts that night, the bonus podcast and the coffee break episode. I was drinking wine. We had such a good time. She said yes. I filmed it. Oh yeah, let's make that clear. I said said yes. yes. And the response we got from our Clatchers made us feel so good. Thank you so much for all the love you've given us. 
That was the best part. And that's why we wanted to bring this up. The reason we started this podcast five years ago was we wanted to create a community where we could all come together around our virtual water cooler, talk about the shows, the movies, the things we really enjoy from Game of Thrones to Westworld and The Magicians, a real passion project of ours that has been one of our greatest successes. This isn't just the type of podcast where we get emails in sometimes and we read them on air, although we do that. We've actually built this amazing network where we can converse with people, receive support, the amount of congratulations we got. It really makes it all worth it. That's why it only made sense for Jason to propose on a podcast. We hope you enjoy that. We hope you'll become part of that group that we're looking to build. And we won't go into the details, but just a quick overview. Depending on your tier, you can get up to three podcasts a month, plus quizzes that you can do with the rest of the Patreons, and great conversation. You get the Coffee Break episode, the bonus episode, and a movie review, and you're helping Christina and myself out. And by the way, last weekend, besides Christina saying yes, we had two other winners in life for this month's CKC Gear giveaway. And this month's winners were Jennifer and Melly. So congratulations. So if you want to become a part of the crew, go over to coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on Patreon, and join us. Now let's head over to Fillory and talk about Julia and Penny. First, before parting ways, Q and Julia smoke a cigarette together. Apparently they both smoke now? Now we've seen cigarettes before, but for some reason I was like, oh my god, they're smoking. I don't know why. But we did notice that Jason Ralph has or does smoke in real life. Totally. I don't think Stella Maeve does. No. (laughs) You could always tell where they're doing the fake. The way they hold it. Puff thing. And I, I feel like I remember him smoking and definitely Elliot, but not her. I don't oh, yeah, know. Elliot for sure. Well, it's a brief interaction. He tells her he missed his father's funeral and services and thinks his mother will be angry with him. And Julia tells him she's going to look for some answers, to which he teases her to have Penny help. The first foreshadowing says he's sweating her. And she does go off with Penny on their search for the Menads. Oh, quick, remind me, how old are they supposed to be? Like in the books, how old are they? Grad school? Yes. Uh, I think it was regular college in the books and grad school in the movies? You know, they're perhaps. our age, though. They're for sure our age, 30s. Oh, much older on the show, <laughs> yeah. Once in Fillory, they find Shoshana about to hang herself. She says the god she served is dead and she has no purpose now. But Julia insists they need her help. She admits she is a goddess who gave away her power. She can't use magic, but she's indestructible. Thus, she needs some answers. This episode was filled with a lot of sexual innuendos. A lot of close-ups, Margot's lips, you know, what Josh is going through. And then we have this scene that we're coming up with, with Penny and uh, Julia. Mm-hmm. But also, like, people just offing themselves. Very dark. Very Moments dark. Moments very quickly kind of gone over. But we've said this before about the magicians. They're not afraid no. to face the hard topics head on. And as we discussed in our character review last time, the Menads were intense followers of Bacchus. You could definitely see them feeling, what is the point of anything now that he's gone? She picks up Aethersis, anyhow, and tries to read Julia's aura. It's inconclusive, but she knows a ritual to diagnose her further. It's intimate. They need someone to perform it who believes in her, worships her both body and soul, and then she can interpret the results. Right away, I was thinking Penny. It's gotta be him. That's why he's here, right? She has to strip naked and be anointed with oils. I love the way Shoshana is like, ah, they had to drink all the poison. 
Like she doesn't want to be a part of this. But of course, once we do realize later on that she is a god, she's right away. She has new meaning. Shoshana's personality, I want to hang out with her. I just love her. This actress is great. The way she's looking all crazed with her makeup running a little. And I think Julia knew that's why she shared this history with her that telling her she'd been a goddess was going to interest her. Maybe there was even a part of her that was hoping there's something that can be done, not all hope is lost. And of course, they handle the scene with Julia and Penny very deftly, having Julia take control of her own empowerment, saying she's not broken or delicate. She can handle this. It's not a big deal. And the fact that Penny is uncomfortable, well, it's not about him. He should just get over himself. This is definitely along the lines that you were saying before. Mm-hmm. One thing, I get it, it's acting. So Stella, I'm not uh, upset. It's okay. It's just acting. I know you really love me, so uh-huh. it's fine. Uh-huh. The fact that she gets to be with I Penny want her here. To know I'm not upset, <laughs> you know? Well, all jokes aside, I thought for sure this was going to kindle something for Julia. Obviously, Penny 23 is still in love with her, but... Well, let's put ourselves in his shoes for a second. This is hard. Yeah. The one true love of his, he watched die. And he had given up on that. In marches Julia and Josh into their world. And now he's thrust into this storyline. But learns that she doesn't love him. It's this other woman who he... Who knows? Maybe they didn't get along. Who knows? Doesn't have a history with her. And here he is. He has to show his feelings that he's been suppressing. Now he has to let it out, but not in a weird way. <laughs> he's got to <laughs> stay cool. You have to worship her body and soul, cool. but this can't be erotic, but it's intimate. Yeah, it's difficult. And that's why I think she's telling him, it's not going to be easy, but you need to take your personal problems out of this because there's something bigger it's not about you. at stake here. This is about figuring out if I'm still a goddess, I need your help. The camera work was done very well. It was very sensual. But at the same time, classy. And ultimately not awkward. And I know that it's not meant to be a romantic scene. She was putting up those walls. We don't have to be uncomfortable about it. But the point of it is just for these purposes. And yet, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's an inkling that it wasn't so bad, you know, after they're finished. I'm just wondering if that's going to develop into anything. To be honest with you, I kind of wanted to. I like them two together. My only worries are Katie. Obviously for Katie, but she doesn't really want to be with this This, penny. This isn't her penny. And hopefully one of these episodes, we're going to get back around to our Penny 40. Who knows? Back here, after they're finished with the ritual, she brings Shoshana the water her feet were bathed in as instructed. Kind of murky. (laughs) Don't judge. Don't be judgy. It's too early to tell the results, but she is shocked that Julia claimed not to have any power. Yes, she can't do magic, but that's not the same. It's then a weird light comes out of the basin, something Shoshana's never seen before. And she realizes she is a goddess. I'm sure that that sparked, so to speak, more of the speculation about what the gods are taking because it does in fact appear as a beam of light. Although visually, aesthetically, how many different ways can you convey power disembodied? You know what I mean? It looked different to me. It looked like more wispy vapor. Well, I saw fire. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> I saw power. I didn't think of it as an actual transformation. I thought of it as Shoshana reading it. Oh, sure. But definitely something different than what Margot's looking at when she's staring at the object being mm. removed from Bacchus's chest, right? Yeah. Uh, for some reason, I do not want to compare those. Equate those. It, equate those. Exactly. Agreed. And this is fun. <laughs> Shoshana proclaims she has a new deity to follow now. Oh, man. Julia and the Menads. I think that's awesome. <laughs> it only makes sense. She's our lady of the tree. These are the Menads. They're very foresty kind of elves. That's the way I picture them. You know, a, a little wild and crazy, though. Maybe not totally in line with Julia's <laughs> essential yeah, but, goddessness. But, but um, the god that they were serving was wild. Yes. So I think they'll change with whomever they're serving. Oh, that could be too. Yeah, that's true. And finally, we're going to talk about our last segment, one of the most gripping. At his father's house, Quentin confronts his mother, Molly, who is furious about him missing the funeral. After all, he knows how she felt about Ted and what was wrong with him, that none of his friends were there. They've been out of touch for a while, so she doesn't really know what's going on. She's asking Quentin, was he dating anybody? He was so normal. He had normal friends. It's really sad to think that the ex-wife or whatever, we don't really know what's gone down between them, wasn't there. His son wasn't there. None of his friends showed up. This is very quietly tragic. She even talks about how she didn't get him when he was alive. She didn't understand his obsession with these model airplanes. She very down to business orders Q to pack it all up. Someone will come for it. 24 hours. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. That place was pretty large and there was a lot of stuff there. These scenes hit home for me, having recently lost my father and knowing what's left behind, emotions and physical things. The fact that he's forced to deal with this while everything else is going on, the Elliot monster, all those things, and within 24 hours, uh, my heart goes out to him. And it it held a lot of weight for me emotionally. And Mm -hmm. my father had model cars, so it was very very similar. Now I'm jumping forward here, but it's the same thought pattern. When the Elliot monster kind of helps him out a little bit emotionally that was legit my favorite scene i'm gonna say of this season so far mm. but it's also because i'm very biased because that meant so much more to me emotionally it made me really like the monster briefly i knew i was being naive but wow no you were being led i think that's the direction they've been taking us since we started to find out there's more to his journey I agree with you. I've always thought the Quentin Elliott scenes are some of the most compelling of every season. We talk often about A Life in the Day being the best episode easily The Magicians has done. And now they have these gripping interactions where Quentin is there, but he's not really himself in the beginning. He's Brian. He comes to and realizes all over again that he's lost his friend. This is Elliot, but it's not really Elliot. It's a monster who's inhabited him. There's so many layers. And... Now, a whole separate group of interactions and emotions with this monster kind of opening up in a monster way. (laughs) He has some darkly hilarious lines. He said, I thought perhaps you would get angry and kill things because you were upset. That's what I do. I've said this too many times this season, but goddamn, I love Hale. Yes. He's doing such an amazing job. (laughs) Oh, so when Q asks for a few minutes to finish up, he's got balls to even ask that i know what else does he do he has to ask in this situation but you must think you're going to be denied that request if you guys have time watch the final scene of episode one with quentin and the elliot monster 
and then immediately watch this scene with Quentin and the Elliot monster mm-hmm. and see how much balls Quentin actually has yeah. comparatively. And more than that, the Elliot monster actually realizes this is important to him. He doesn't get the loving your dead dad game as he doesn't remember ever experiencing that, but thinks he could learn something. At one point he says, so I just sit still and don't kill anything and watch you. This is the weirdest thing I've ever done. Eventually, though, he gets bored and starts breaking planes. He wonders why Quentin is doing this at all and why his mother has such strange power over him. Why does your mother have such strange power over you? Because once when I was a kid, I broke an ashtray. And now she still fucking thinks that I break everything. Because... Basically, your parents never change how they see you, no matter what. So if they can't change how they see you, then why does it matter? Because sometimes I think she's right. Things break around me. Alice, my dad, all of goddamn magic. Then break them on purpose. They're your planes. You can do what you want with them. Maybe you'll feel better. Honestly, if you were reading that on paper, I think it doesn't read as well as it does in the show. Of course. It's so impactful. The energy that's flying around the room. The, the smile Hale has on his face. The way Quentin looks at him when he realizes this is actually working. It's cathartic. I can't believe of all sources it's coming from this creature. And the way Jason's acting this out. You know, in season one and two specifically, Q felt more whiny, but now... Immature, naive, yeah, wants to be the hero. This but, was his journey in the books. But now Q's actually going through something really bad. And the way Jason's acting it, there's so many more layers to it at this point. He still has the same essential problems, though, that he always feels stuck. He always feels he's being given a raw deal in life, which he actually is now, but it's all consuming. It's always the most important thing, whatever he's emotionally going through right now. But he's been through a lot. He has, but he's, he still just never knows what to do with that. How right. do I move forward? What is the next thing? And here, he's getting practical advice from this crazy relationship that he's formed with this monster. Maybe we need to let it out. Let's have a catharsis. And you really think they're actually going to come to a place of understanding. It's pretty wild. Until the Elliot monster tells him the reason he's been doing this. He will need his help to search for more gods, and Quentin will be more useful if he feels better. Do you think that's the entire truth? No, not at all. Even right when he said it, I was like, no, that Mm -hmm. can't be right. There's a lot going on there. It's not just the beast lying to lie for himself so that he can have Quentin be all there mentally, which is what he tells him. (laughs) He wants to be loved. He wants to feel that love that he's seeing Q has for his father and for his friends. He wants that feeling. He even said to Margot, the reason he likes inhabiting Elliot's body so much, he likes the way people look at him and he likes how much the group cares about him. This is not just playing with other people. We've learned that. He wants to be loved. He wants to be besties with Margot. He wants to get it. And have that. And he also knows there's a piece of him missing that he doesn't understand. I think that's part of what he's trying to get watching Quentin. I see that I'm supposed to have that. 
Yeah. People have this experience <clears throat> where they lose someone and they feel bad. If that's Prometheus, if we're going back on what we said two episodes ago, maybe he's so drawn to those feelings because that's how Prometheus was mm-hmm. with the humans. Yeah. No other gods were really interested in what happened with them and who, who are these human cockroaches. To reflect on Q real quick, this show, what our heroes have been going through, I mean, it's more than multiple lifetimes of trials and tribulations, which only makes a day in the life that much more beautiful because they had one thing that they were trying to do, which was solve that puzzle. They had beautiful land there, nice house. They got a family and a family's family mm-hmm. after that. They ate, they enjoyed themselves, they enjoyed each other. And all they did was every day go into their backyard and work on that puzzle. The simplicity of that life juxtaposed with Q's actual life and Elliot's actual life. I think there's some kind of beauty between that divergence. Yeah, and it makes me think again about the books because even when Quentin would finally think he had found that, the thing he was looking for that would make him happy and fulfill him, there was something missing or he got bored He needed a new adventure. He thought he wanted that, but it was never enough. He never knew how to just live then. So that episode was all the more incredible to sort of see him do that, something we had wanted for him this whole time. But it's always short-lived. There's always more problems for our group to deal with. Speaking of more problems, the monster says he should also know his friend Elliot is dead. He can smash more things if he wants, then they'll go eat. He felt the moment Elliot's soul died, but wants Quentin to know he didn't suffer. It only hurt for a second. And he thinks eventually Quentin will come around. Probably most importantly, as he says this, the camera zooms in very close up on his eye and seems to go inside of the eye. And you hear Elliot yelling. And then we pan out to a shot of Elliot, a normal seeming Elliot. Actually, old school seeming Elliot. This is not how Elliot even looked anymore. Year one, Elliot. Right. And where he's at looks like an empty break Bill's grounds. He's calling out for Margot. When the camera keeps zooming out, we can see the rest of it. It looks like a partially completed sketch. It's just the idea of break Bill's. Beautiful shot. So where is he? They make it seem like he's kind of inside of the monster, but he's also kind of in this pocket world, if you want, an unfinished one where he's just wandering aimless and confused in a place that's not even complete and no one's there. Is the Elliot monster trying to sketch it out for him to make him more comfortable? Or inside of him, is he in some part of his brain where Elliot's just existing in a memory within a thought? Maybe. Yeah, isolated. that could be it too, for sure. But that's the part of Break Bills where the story opens up originally. Mm-hmm. So it has a lot of meaning there. We can't begin to pretend to understand at this Why point. Why that is, yeah. But it's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. I can't wait to see more. We've been talking about that all season, what's going on with the real Elliot inside of there. And I think that we will get some. All of that to come in the spoiler section. That finishes the plot, and actually we have gotten to pretty much all of our questions as well. So let's just head right to our rating, where each episode... We give a ranking from 1 to 10 rations. Just like magic rations, less is worse, more is better. Jason, what do you give episode 4? While I did really enjoy this standalone quote-unquote episode, we had a lot of character pairings that we weren't expecting. Uh, It was missing Katie for me. It was missing Dean Fogg for me. I really did enjoy this episode, but as compared to the rest of the season, it's not right up there. 
So I'm going to go with 8.5 rations. Well, I agree with you about all of that. It did feel a bit contained of an episode, a bit divergent, even though I'm sure all of these things will tie in. And as we said at the top, do contribute to character development. The fact that we didn't get all of our characters is fine with me. When the group is not together, they often move this way throughout pairings. It does sometimes feel a little disjointed, but allows them to focus in on more people and spread the time around. And I like the characters we chose to focus on this time. It was odd groupings, but they made sense. They were the ones I wanted to see. Yeah. What I mean, was last happening. season you were like, I want more Josh because you loved Josh in the book. Yeah. Josh and Margot together is brilliant. Quentin and Elliot, the Elliot monster always makes sense. And I'm going to need some time for the for shipping of Josh and Margot. I just need yeah, some time. No, I do too. That's ultimately the thing. The direction some of them went in, the overall tone of the episode was a little bizarre to me. I enjoyed myself, but I know when I look back on the season later, this might be the episode that um, I'm not necessarily going to want to rewatch. It wasn't as earth shattering, perhaps. I feel very much in line with IMDb, so I'm going to give it an eight. Eight rations. So now we move on to our digital water cooler. We go on to our Twitter, at CKC Podcast, where we asked our Clatchers, who is your MVM and what are your thoughts on this episode? If you haven't joined us yet, follow us on Twitter, at CKC Podcast, Facebook, CoffeeClatchCrew.com, and Instagram. This week, we gave you Margot, Julia, slash Penny, Josh, and Quentin. Coming in at fourth place is Josh. Oh, that's so sad. It's kind of like the Josh episode. episode. And with only 3%, poor Josh. Well, that's one of the issues, and, and I feel weird saying this because I feel like it could be read wrong, but for some reason, him being a werewolf or turning into a werewolf did not hold as much weight for me in this storyline. Yeah, I, I agree, and I'm having a hard time articulating that. I, I think based on my comments, it's sounding like I'm saying it doesn't matter. It clearly matters to Josh, <laughs> to his character, to what's important and happening with him. But in order to not make that crazy dark, we're doing what we normally do with Josh and making it funny. Which I enjoy. It's great. So I don't understand this feeling. But it just, (laughs) it makes it feel like it doesn't hold as much weight. And how does it weave in with the rest of the story? The Magicians has done a great thing by pairing him with Mario here. I think they knew that would make it more important. And the way that it affects the two of them together. But clearly, what it's mostly building on is Margot. Moving along, coming in third with only 5% was Quentin. His emotional journey was a little contained and bottle-like here. It was him managing his grief and figuring out how to get over it. And he didn't really push the plot line forward as far as what's happening with the Elliot monster too much until the very, very end. But he was part of my favorite scene. It was amazing amazing. to watch. Yeah, for sure. And second place with 18% is Julia and Penny. Well, that was a compelling storyline there. We got a new pairing. We're not used to it, but for some reason it fits easier to me than Margot and Josh. Mm -hmm. And I'm more than willing to go along with it. Explore that. And accept it. Yeah. And it's always exciting when you realize that our heroes are very powerful. It's like, yes! Well, and if this could bring the two of them, who are clearly both struggling with a lot of their own issues, some measure of happiness, that's something we want to see for both characters, right? Yeah. 
it's exciting to get a little bit more of what's happening. But I, I think, again, they cut us very, very short with the Julia as a goddess still has power story. Mm-hmm. So it didn't move the needle too much. Yeah. And this is a difficult thing as far as writing when you have a powerful character. And we talked about this last season when she became or was becoming a full-fledged god. We had said multiple times when she becomes this powerful, they are going to have to take it away from her. And we knew that for sure because just like anything, Neo in the Matrix, when your hero gets too strong, you can't write around it anymore. Where do you go? Where do you go? Because anything, any problems can just be solved like that. Why can't she just fix it? So where they're at now, they're still making her a god with tremendous power, but she can't do magic. That's kind of like a fix right now. And I love that. We know that she's powerful. (laughs) She can't be killed. She's got issues, and it's very interesting because part of us still wants her. Yes, get the power back because we, we see ourselves in our characters, right? I'm curious to see what they do because if they give her full-fledged power ever again, they're going to be stuck stuck, and I don't know if that's where they want to go as writers. Unfortunately, that also makes me feel like we're a little stuck now, and if this goes on too long, it's kind of like a stall, And I also worried it would feel a bit like a mimic of her last season's journey, which it's starting to while they're approaching it in unique and fresh ways and other characters like Penny. That's keeping it interesting. The mean ads. She's almost rediscovering that all over again. I think you're a brave show. Do it. (laughs) Have her get the power back. There could be a reason why it doesn't solve everything. Just like we see here, she has it, but she doesn't know how to manipulate it yet. Maybe it's because she never trained. She Mm. bounced out on Iris and she didn't learn. Um, Or maybe it's because we may be at war with the Titans eventually. And being a god means nothing when you're going against the Titans. That would be amazing. It's scary. It's hard plot writing, but I think they can do it. And I'm hoping that that's where we're going. If we end up seeing Iris again this season, we know that Julie is about to have some magical powers. Or Persephone, who has kind of pieced out on the whole situation. I don't think Persephone is going to be around. I don't really think so either, but I'd kind of like to keep meeting new gods as well. That's been a lot of fun. Back to our poll. Coming in first place with the highest percentage of a poll so far this season, 74% is Margot. Which is fantastic. She hasn't actually won a poll yet. We've given it to her once. But man, did she own the episode again? I'm going to get in trouble with my votings this season. I can already see it. I've said I thought it'll be the Margot season. It is thus far. She's just been an incredible character to watch. And very often when you go through such an arc, as we've been discussing, where do you go from there? But she keeps going. She keeps growing and evolving. There's new challenges, new stuff for her to face. And I think I'm going to be interested in this all season long. Again, if you look back into season one, the Margo we had then, she was kind of a brat and all into drugs and being cool. She's made some She was lost. Leaps Elliot and was and lost. Growth. Yes, absolutely. Margo sacrificed herself physically, emotionally. She has been for the sake of the group, her morals, like everything, whatever she has to do. She doesn't want anyone else to have to die. So I'm going to agree with the Clatchers this week and go with Margot as well. I'm going to have to echo that, making it my second Margot. As you know, according to our rules, we're supposed to only do three. It's your rules. I never follow that. (laughs) I go with what I feel. No rules. You were forcibly in agreement with this for a while. Just putting it out there in the universe. Bullshit. But I too think she wins the episode. 
So let's see what our Clatchers had to say about this episode. Hillary says, I vote for Margot. She told Josh last week to pussy up, and this week she proves she's no hypocrite. And um, Twitter did not like the fact that she said pussy. They censored it. (laughs) Come on. This is the magicians. We're saying fuck left and right now. Dr. Barbara says, I was actually hoping to vote for the Elliot monster. We did have a discussion about that. We wanted to put him in because of the reasons we've already talked about. There's so many layers to this monster. He's so interesting now. I think that's just going to keep building, though, and get better. I think his time is coming soon. Lauren says, Insta-couples on Valentine's Eve? Seems a little forced. Love that last moment, though. Vests are back. (laughs) Anon P says, I always wondered why we never heard what happened to Plover. This show really doesn't drop anything. P.S. When is High King Margot going to take her rightful place back on the throne? If she's given up on Elliot, she needs to move her ass back to Fillory. She's got other friends, man. Yeah, and she says that, but I don't know if she's really given up on Elliot. I don't think she ever can. No, she hasn't. And also, let's remember that she was stuck and trapped there last season while her friends had to go out and sacrifice themselves and try to figure things out. So the last thing she wants to do is go back in that throne room when she knows all of her friends, the people she loves, are out there doing what needs to be done. She's got to help fix it. Also, they say the Margot and Josh thing felt very reminiscent of Josh and Poppy in the books. Is that just me? No, it's not. I felt that as well. I didn't want to get too much into that territory because we haven't come back to Poppy yet. I don't know where they're going with that. You had mentioned we might not see any of those characters from the Mirror Bridge at all this season, which I could never buy. But four episodes in, I'm wondering... Well, we have 13, so there's time. I think later in the season, so we're going to come back around to that. We'll hold that in our minds. Oh, dear. There's Margot Josh shipping happening here, Jason. <laughs> they want to know what their ship name would be. Mar-Josh, Josh-Go. I like Margosh. It's like Margosh. I like that. <laughs> Meg says, what an episode. This show is so well-written and acted. I feel emotionally damaged. Thank goodness for the very end with hashtag Save Elliot. Josh is my favorite werewolf. And long live High King Margot. Agree, agree, agree. Andrew says he thinks I'm right. Looks like it's the Margot season. He was a little disappointed in the episode. He feels the main conflicts, Darth Elliot, the McAllisters, and the library took a back seat. I agree, but like we said, I think that's coming back around in a big way soon. Amir loves Margot, but his vote's going to Julia. Let's get this goddess back. <laughs> yeah. And Sherry has an idea. She says, based on last night's episode... She proposes Alice is the key to finding Elliot. By exploring possible worlds for Plover's escape, she may accidentally stumble upon the world where Elliot is imprisoned? Thoughts? That's thinking that it is, let's say, a pocket world. It could be. Which, we've seen it, is a possibility. Ember and Umber were creating one. You could travel there, because he took Quentin there. And that is a god, so that part inside of him could be a pocket quote-unquote world that he created for Elliot. They can keep that wherever they want. When we say inside of him, that's kind of what I'm thinking of that just being housed somewhere in there where it's a whole other kind of world, one that he doesn't even really care to build so much. That's why it's only partially filled (laughs) in. Melly says she's voting for Margot. She also wonders how things will be between the two, Josh and Margot, once Elliot's back. Josh has always been a bit of an outsider to the group. And it's like, Elliot is gone. Margot's suddenly into Josh. Will she discard Josh the second Elliot's back? Even though Elliot's not boyfriend material, they have such a deep bond, she fears Josh will end up being put aside and hurt. I see what you're saying, but that kind of relationship that Elliot and Margot have, 
they've always had things on the side and they're always cool. They play around that. I think that Josh would acquiesce to that kind of relationship. And I do not think Elliot will be jealous or anything. If Margot's happy, he's happy. Because they're not in a romantic relationship, right. so to speak. It's not defined like that. They love each other. They have a very, very deep connection. But he's married to Fen. She is with other people. That's just it's the way that this works. I am a little concerned, though, about what she's saying, that Josh is always sort of the outsider. Does this change anything permanently, what they experienced and went through together here? Or once other things start coming up, will just Josh kind of just fade back into that role? Unfortunately, that's sort of what always happens to him. He isn't anyone's number one, the way that Julia's Penny's number one and Elliot's Margot's number one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I could kind of see that, not that she would put him to the side, but perhaps Josh needs a thing that's all his own. I don't know. We got to wait and see. It was kind of a bizarre end to it for now. The thing that was all his own was uh, being best friends with a god, mm-hmm. which no one else had. Which they took from him. We also got a bunch of other comments, emails. I know we're not going to be able to get to everything, but we read all of them. Hopefully, we responded to most of them, as many as we could. But we read all of them. That's what's important. Oh, we always do. So these are to our email, contact at CKC Podcast. We got an email from Frank who said he is really interested in the Greek mythology and was looking to see if there's a podcast that discusses that more. I am sure there is because it feels like there's a podcast on most things these days. I'm just not familiar with one to recommend. If any of you Clatchers are aware of one, I would actually love to listen to that too. In the meantime, I found a great audiobook recently that I listened to. It's an old story, but I'd never heard it before. It's called Heroes, Gods, and Monsters of the Greek Myths by Bernard Evslin. It really goes over very quickly all of the main stories, the big mythological figures. Also, one of my favorites, I talk about it a lot, if you can get past the fact that it's clearly written for such a young audience, the Percy Jackson books were still really enjoyable. And more than that, afterwards, they came out with two companion books, Greek Gods and Greek Heroes where they have stories behind each one. So you can kind of understand it more. It goes more in depth. And as I say, if you can kind of get over some of the corny jokes, it's really cool. It's a good way to absorb the information. Corny jokes. I love corny jokes. (laughs) It's right up your alley. Anthony also wrote in, we have a couple listeners now from France. It's so great to hear people listening from all over the place, though we know it is airing later there, so they can't participate in our polls, unfortunately. He, too, has a lot of questions about the Elliot monster. Are we eventually going to side with it? Is he a good person who sort of got his shade removed and everything else stolen by the gods? Are the gods the real bad guys? How long can he go on god hunting? Does he really want to kill them all? We've had all of these same questions, right? We don't think that he is at base all bad. We definitely think it's going to come to a showdown with the gods. I hope to see that. He too is wondering, when are we going to get to see Penny 40? All good questions, as well as a couple of emails, including one from Lori wondering what the McAllisters are up to, what their big plan is. Yeah, I'm definitely concerned about them. I think they're going to be more than a thorn in our side. The fact that they're slow playing it for so long. Mm -hmm. Maybe eventually the gods will put them in their place. That would be a really awesome way to end it. 
Thank you again for all the fan interaction and thank you to everyone who left us new reviews this week on The Magicians and our other channels. Yeah, thank you to all you guys. We read them. Such sweet things to say and I'm going to put this on my wall for when I doubt myself. I'm going to read these. (laughs) Words of affirmation. Best hype man ever with the heading killing it like the monster not getting sprinkles. (laughs) (laughs) My secret Beth, best podcast out there. Oh my goodness. Thank you. And last of six, get out of my head. Thank you so much. (laughs) That's cute. We appreciate it. The emails, the Twitter comments, the Twitter follows, Patreon, and the reviews mean so much to Christina and myself. It means that what we're doing, the hard work we're putting in, people are listening and they care about it. And they love this show as much as we do. It's going to bring us to our last two segments, our character review and spoiler section. First up, let's talk about Christopher Plover. And Jason, I know that you haven't read the source material yet, so I'm excited for you to hear a little bit about him. Growing up, Christopher had issues with his own father. He stated in letters he was a harsh disciplinarian, and while never wholly abusive, was difficult to please. Christopher turned to books and was immediately hooked on fantasy. He studied business at Harvard, but was dismissed after two years due to moral turpitude. The first in a number of questionable but quietly unacknowledged incidents throughout his 20s. After his dismissal, he returned to Chicago where he joined his father's business. There, he developed friendships with people in the writing field, including a prominent editor. By the early 1920s, though, his father was in declining health and left the business to Christopher. His key influence was upon meeting the Chatwin family, who lived in a neighboring house. In 1931, the five children appeared one day, and Plover invited them in. He warmed to them as he discovered they had vivid imaginations, often recounting their adventures to a magical land named Fillory. He began to take notes of their adventures, and they became regular visitors. Over the next years, he collected them and completed his first manuscript that was accepted and released, Book One, The World in the Walls, which told the story of how Martin discovered Fillory and explored it with his sister Fiona. It was modestly successful, But it was also around this time that Christopher was called in as a person of interest when Martin Chatwin disappeared in 1935. He was cleared of all charges, but as the investigation moved on, he became a recluse, largely withdrawing from public life. Encouraged by his first book, he wrote his second, The Girl Who Told Time, in 1936, which traces Helen and Rupert's adventures. This was his first major seller. Unfortunately, when he released the third book, The Flying Forest, it was considered a lesser installment and overshadowed by the release of The Hobbit. Nevertheless, he released The Secret Sea in 38. The book sold poorly. And in 1939, newspapers reported that Plover was discovered dead in his home at the age of 54. A brief investigation ruled his death a suicide, though this was disputed for a long time. Following his death, he left a significant trust to the Chatwin children, in thanks, according to his will, for the inspiration that created his fortune. The Wandering Dune was later published from the manuscript found among his papers and was considered darker than the rest of the stories. Also, things you might not know, Christopher was a self-taught magician, having read the books on the entire 101 of magical theory. He was obsessed with going to Fillory and studied on traveling. The extent of his knowledge is unknown, but he did manage to form a mental link between himself and Martin Chatwin. His body was marked with age suspension magic by Martin, so he could torture him every day. Okay, so that's the marks. So I was way off with that. Well, no, because he would have already had them. So where we hear that 
he was discovered dead, we believe this is the time he finally figured out how to transport himself to Fillory. Nobody ever saw him again. We know once there, Martin found him, the beast found him, and as retribution, he wanted to torture him forever, so he made him age much slower so he could just keep punishing him. Maybe he has had it since then. I don't really know what that's about. There's a piece of that that particularly interests me, but it gets us into broaching our spoiler territory. So if you're afraid of that, I want to give you your warning here. We will see you next time when we review episode five. For those of you who are still here, you might have caught that I said the fourth book in the Fillory and Further series was called The Secret Sea. Well, I told you we were going to come back around to the fact that we think we have all of the episode titles for the rest of this season, starting with next time, episode five, which is Escape from the Happy Place. After that, six, a timeline in place, seven, the side effect, eight, home improvement, nine, the serpent, 10, all that hard, glossy armor, (laughs) 11, the 411, 12, the secret C, and 13, no, better to be safe than sorry. So the secret C, all we know about that in the Fillory books was it followed the adventures of Jane and Rupert as they sought the remains of the great shark army to help them take back Fillory from the Watcher Woman. Are we going to meet a great shark army in episode 12? Hmm. I wonder. And take back Fillory. Mm-hmm. Who takes control of Fillory? We know some shit's going down right now that we're not totally seeing everything about because we keep kind of bouncing in and out. But what's going down? Well, they're not really being ruled. Um, Fen, how dare you? Well, yeah, <laughs> I know. We don't see what's going on with her. The god is gone. Yeah, so presumably the air is no longer totally saturated with opium, it seems. <laughs> Unfortunately... But between now and whenever they get back there, I assume there's going to be issues. Next episode, episode five, which we said is called Escape from the Happy Place. The synopsis is Alice and Quentin confront a dog. There are some flashbacks. What is with them and the animal things that don't really matter? Alice and Quentin confront a dog. So I want to say that's Katie at this point. Mm -hmm. The last time we saw her, she was not herself and she had puppies. Right. And they talked about puppies. She's not in this episode, which means she's going to mean more next episode. Um, I'm only assuming that this is the case. Who knows, though? Well, we did see in the preview somebody telling Elliot, a monster possessed you and it is and is inhabiting your body. Then you see Elliot really frustrated, saying, all I need is one moment to tell my friends I'm alive. And Q is saying, I'm about to kill my friend. It's a monster with Elliot's face, but it's still a monster. Oh, boy. So this is the showdown. He's going to think he has no choice but to kill this Elliot monster. They're all wondering, is Elliot even inside of there at all, or is he gone? Margot kind of thinks he could be gone. So it's going to come to, he's getting ready to kill him. Somehow Elliot's aware and is saying, I have to let them know I'm still alive in here. This is going to be crazy. And is this what the book was talking about, that this is Quentin's end, the end of his story? There's going to be some crazy shit. And just a couple more things about up and coming. There has been some misinformation 
on IMDb at times about actors that are in certain episodes. So I always hesitate to say they're coming up. They will just show they're coming sometime in this season. You don't really know when or how important it's going to be. But we did get some write-ins about this. Aaron says the opening credits list Jewel State, Firefly, which would be a huge actress to introduce. IMDb has her listed as playing the role of Phyllis which also showed her being in the last episode. And that's why I say that, you know, we don't really know where that's going to play in. But Mark said the same thing, noticing that this actress is listed here. Oh, actually, we did see her. Thank you to Mark. She was the one smoking a cigarette on top of the roof as Santa's flying off with the reindeer. Very brief, but yeah. Oh, wow. Well, hopefully she would come back more than that. But also the character that played the blonde card player who went up against Q in the first round Mm -hmm. of the card game, named Whitley in the series, is played by Wes Duchovny. And speaking of people who might make an appearance, they do have listed for the next episode, the actress who plays Iris, the messenger goddess. Oh, there we go. Mm -hmm. So that would actually fit right in. If anyone is likely to be seen, I think it's going to be her. You know, you just reminded me with that scene with the Santa flying in the sky. I realized what in this season, the library and that world, that Cheerio. It's so funny. There's people, Clatchers that I speak to now. They refer to it as a Cheerio. I'm like, yes. So it never got to be donuts. It got to be your Cheerios. That's right. Congratulations. Thank you. Because you never see that many donuts together. You see that many Cheerios together. I would love to see that many donuts (laughs) together right now. I view the library at this point much like the Ministry of Magic. Mm. They think they're doing good. They're keeping a lot of things secret and they want control. But in the end, they're pretty bad. They should just work with the heroes. Yeah. (laughs) That gets us even more excited. I can't wait to see what's to come. It sounds like we're going to get to see a lot of interesting plot points in Escape from the Happy Place. Clatchers, thank you so much for becoming part of the family. And Patreon members, you have the bonus coming out soon. And until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me! Please hang up and try again.